He shoots, he draws is sponsored by the Westcott Rapid Box Switch. Isn't it time you made the switch? Do it today at www.fjwestcott.com backslash switch. Welcome to the He Shoots, He Draws podcast, the show about photography and design with your hosts, Glenn Dewis and Dave Clayton. Hi and welcome back to a new episode of He Shoots, He Draws. I'm Dave Clayton and with me is the person who each week I try and find a funny intro for him. Glyn Jewis, how you doing, mate? I'm very good, mate. Thank you very much. Nice. Nice <laughs> to see you. Uh, now, obviously, last week we were on the back of leaving Los Angeles. Uh, we'd just been to Adobe Max and we released an episode on Monday, which was talking about it. And on the back of that, one of the things we wanted to do while we were here was get a couple of interviews for the podcast. And one person we know we definitely wanted to get was our great friend Bert Monroy. Absolutely, yeah. There was a number of people we wanted to speak to while we were coming out here, wasn't there? We created like a list. Yeah. Bert was definitely way up on that list because he is, as I call him, the, the godfather of Photoshop. I think everybody calls him that, to Absolutely. be honest with you. Absolutely. Uh, but there was other people like Lisa Carney, Katrina Eisman, yeah. who we couldn't speak to because Lisa actually had a, something wrong. She hurt her leg. Yeah. Katrine was suffering with a cold. There's a few people were here as well. We'll catch up with those later. Yes. But Bert Monroy's, it was an interview I had to do on my own because uh, I know you desperately wanted to be there, but you were involved in a class. Yes. So I kind of managed to find a small corner of Adobe Max away from 14,000 people. People, yeah, uh, there is just, some ambient sound. Yeah, there's but a bit I think of ambient noise in the to, background. Yeah, definitely a bit of ambient noise in the background. But uh, had a great chat with Bert uh, because there was so much that I didn't know about Bert, and I think you as well. Yeah, about his background because I've, I've only ever known of Bert from initially when I saw him come to London from America teaching yeah. uh, a class on special effects in Photoshop because he's one of these kind of like digital artists that recreates real scenes. Yeah. Um, and that was just fascinating, absolutely fascinating. But there's more to Bert, I didn't realise, the life prior to when I first and you first got to know him, when he was working at places like Apple, preparing the keynote speeches for Steve Jobs, which completely blew me away. Working <laughs> what at a job, the pressure I know, of that. I know, the pressure. <laughs> but working at Industrial Light and Magic, there is so much to him. It was kind of like the interview we did with Peter Hurley when we said to Peter, we know you, but we don't know you. Yeah, so let's we know you from this more. point forward. And then, you know, and Bert being a legend in the industry, it's not, I think it's nice for him. He's a legend in many areas, you know, and such a nice guy. And he's always so friendly when we meet him and you can't help but just... Yeah, he's, he's incredibly he's humble. It, yeah. He's another one of these folks that we have had the privilege of getting to know and call a friend that has no ego. He's, he's, what he does speaks volumes. He, does, yeah. he doesn't need to shout about it. He just puts that work out there and it's like, wow. And I know that I've learned so much... And so many other people have learned so much because I think we we most uh, we did a little post on social media saying that we'd spoken to Bert, yeah. and the amount of replies we got from people saying, "Oh my God, he's a legend! I've learned so much from him." Blah 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 blah. Yeah. So glad you've managed to get in, uh, to speak to him. But uh, if yeah. anyone's learned the the tool of his trade, Bert knows how to make Photoshop work. When you see he talks about, I've got one hundred seventy thousand layers in this piece. I know. Crazy, it's crazy, and yeah. say so look him up. We'll put links in the show notes uh, as we record this. I haven't heard it, so I'm going to be listening to it as a first time listener, which would be really cool because uh, I have a nice little commute, so that's on my list. <laughs> um, but really, let's go. Yeah, let's, let's go do it the way we always do it. But I just want to say that this, what I love about this interview is, is the fact that Bert was around this Photoshop kind of world, if you like, before Photoshop was even Photoshop. Yeah. So he was there from the birth 
up to present day. So he's seen how it's grown and developed. I mean, he used to have to use Photoshop before there were layers. Oh my God. Do you know what I mean? So it's just incredible hearing that side of things that he talks about, but also he talks about his creative process, yes. which is fascinating. And also about how things that he sees people don't do that maybe they could do, which would really help them in their own creative world or yeah. own creative kind of process. So brilliant interview. But yeah, we're, we're kind of, we don't want to give away anything on this no, one. I no. want people to really listen to this. There is, like Dave said, there is a little bit of audio that you'll hear in the background. That's just people milling around. I've brought it down a little bit, but you know, it adds to the atmosphere. Exactly. It makes you <laughs> puts you in the place. Put, you, puts you, you sat in a room at Adobe Max. If you could, if you wanted to be at Adobe Max, this is the way to do it. This is it. Yeah. So yeah, let's uh, well, let's kick. Let's it crack off as we on. So do. Uh, let's just go for it with Bert. Who are you? Uh, basically, I'm an artist. I've been an artist. Uh, in fact, my mother had my first drawing that I ever did that was recognizable. I was two years old, uh, and I've been drawing ever since. I, um, I was always in trouble in school for drawing in class, and when I was looking for a high school, um, my teacher's sister, St. Helen, um, she told me, you know, you've been in trouble your whole life for drawing class. Why don't you try to get into the High School of Art and Design. So I applied, and I made it, and that became my formal training. Um, so I've been a, a artist my entire life. I've always liked to draw. I like to uh, recreate things. If, growing up, it was kind of like my escape from, from my environment. Um, I would sit there and just draw all these pictures and stuff. And then I did it professionally, and, and that's how I, still to this day, that's how I relax. And, uh, I'll do commercial work, but when... I sit there and do my own personal work. It's like I get lost in the scene that I'm painting and it, it, the whole world kind of disappears. Um, what I, I like to tell people is that I, uh, I make my money not by being an artist, but by talking about being an artist <laughs> because I write books. I do all these seminars, all the podcasts and TV shows. Um, I do make more money off of that than I actually do selling prints. So I, I, I'm an artist who likes to talk about it. You are somebody, I mean, just to give you like an overview, you are somebody who I, when I first got involved in this whole industry, because although I'm, I guess, kind of known as being a photographer now, Photoshop was how I first got involved in it. And there were certain people that I learned from, you know, when I first started, and you were definitely one of those people. And then there was people like Deep McClelland and Ben Wilmore. So it was the three of you that really, really helped me. Do you know what I mean? But I remember my first, obviously, because I'm, I'm proud to say we're friends now. I've got yeah. to know you through this industry. But I remember the first time that I ever spoke to you properly was a few years back, and it was when we were at a conference together, and I kind of did that talk on stage, which was me opening up right. a lot more than I would ordinarily right. have done, and you've kind of come over to me. I remember I stood with Dave, Dave Clayton, I've gone, I could see you coming from where you were sitting. I was like, Dave, Bert Monroy's coming. And I was genuinely nervous about you coming <laughs> over. And then you kind of come over and discussed about the fact that what I'd said resonated with you yeah, and all this yeah. kind of stuff. So... That was kind of like that my initial first talk with you, mm. but although we've kind of got to know each other, kind of through this whole industry, I don't, I don't really know you. Do you know what I mean? So, so take me back. How you say you you were an artist? How on earth did you get into the whole Photoshop thing? How did that start? Okay, well that's a, that's a good story. I was an art director for quite a few ad agencies in New York, and. Um, I had my own agency. I started my own ad agency, and I had a partner, and he told me that we, we have to computerize. This is 1984. Right. He said, we have to computerize. And I said, okay, yeah, sure. Get your computer. Don't expect me to sit there and enter data. Uh, that's for you to deal with. I'm the artist, right? He said, no, there's a new computer coming out that you'll be able to do your layouts on. 
So I was a little skeptical. So we went down to the computer store, and I saw this little box, this little Macintosh 128. I sat there, and I drew a box. Hey, that, that was pretty cool. I moved the box, and I thought, wow, that's going to save me a lot of money on tracing papers. I can move things around <laughs> to work on my layouts. So I started thinking, this is really cool. And then I made a mistake. Suddenly, it's like, oh, I think I broke the machine. And the guy comes over, um, and he says, oh, you're just in fat bits. I said, fat bits? He says, you zoomed in to the bit level. It was only one zoom level, but I zoomed into that, and that's when it clicked. This is it. This is the future. This is my medium, because I used to work really large to get the detail that I like to get, um, but now I can zoom in. I don't have to work large. I can zoom in to get the detail that I want, so I got really interested. So I was in that store. Um, I got the 27th Mac in New York. But it didn't come out right away. You know, they were showing it in the store. And um, I remember I was in that store every day playing with it. And they let me alone because after a couple of days, I had mastered master Mac Paint. So they let me sit there and play with it because I would then show it to people. And I was selling Macs because I was doing demos of Mac Paint. So they just let me sit there. So when my machine came, that was it. That summer of 84... We disbanded the ad agency and started a whole business around the Mac. I put together a thing called Human Forms, which was one of the first clip-out packages, and it was over a thousand body parts: uh, wrist, the 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 hand, the forearm, the upper arm, the torso, in various positions. And all you had to do is match the crosshairs at the joint where the parts would meet, and then erase the crosshairs, and you can build human bodies. So I started a whole business around that, and then um, we got this unusual little product called a mouse pad so we started selling mouse pads and we built the whole business around the mac and uh that's when i got involved now being that early i started getting a lot of work with uh, i became the art director of the um the mac street journal which was the um the newsletter of the new york mac users group so i was getting a lot of work and i started doing work for mac world and mac user magazines so there weren't that many of us. There weren't that many people doing this kind of stuff. Uh, then I got to do um, the first digital comic book, which was a thing called Shatter that Mike Sines did. He hired me to do all the backgrounds. So I would do all the city scenes and all that in Mac Paint, and then he would add the people and the dialogue. So since I was getting around with being this, this Mac artist, um, anybody who was working on anything on the Mac any kind of digital, uh, you know, uh, drawing tool, whatever, they would send it to me first. They said, what do you think of this? How do you, should we fix it? How do so I got to see a lot of things really early. And this is because you were kind of like the person who was doing yeah. the most with Mac Paint. Right, and, so I was right. visible. Right. I, my name was showing up in a lot of places, so, yeah. so I was very visible, so people kept sending me things. So I got to see a lot of things. Uh, in fact, I remember uh, I was at a Macworld, and um, these two guys, Tom Hedges and Mark Zimmer, were showing this little thing called gray paint, okay, in their booth. Um, now, recently I had flown to London to because the Thunderscan, the first uh, scanner that you you would place the ink cartridge in the image writer with this scanner, and it would go back and forth and scan your pictures. So I, I went to London to meet with Letraset to um, let to convince them to let me scan all their their press type things not just the type but the the architectural renderings and stuff that they had and put them on disc well they told me they they didn't see any market in that but they wanted to keep me as a consultant so when i saw this thing called gray paint 
which had a fantastic uh, airbrush. Um, I told Letra said, I said, buy this program. Let's develop this program, buy this program. So they did. They bought this program. They changed the name to Realist. It went through a lot of different names. Finally, went to market with a thing called, uh, it was called Image Studio. That was the first image manipulation program. The right. first one of its kind for retouching on a Mac. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I, I did all the ads for it. I trained all the people who were going to show it. I personally couldn't show it because I have long hair. <laughs> I, that's, you know, that's what their marketing people told me. It was inappropriate. The wrong yeah, yeah. Oh, my uh, God, right. So, but but it's okay. I didn't care. You know, but I trained everybody. And, um, and Image Studio was very popular program. It did well. Um, then the Mac 2 came out in color. Uh, Image Studio became Color Studio. But Letraset had no idea what they were doing. They were just screwing up everything. And the, the different software they were buying was just not working out. So they gave up the business. Mark and Tom took back um, Color Studio, sold it to Meta Creations, and it got renamed Painter, which is what Painter is today. Yeah. Um, and, um, but um, also the, when Color Studio came out, this other program, which was a quarter of the price was coming out, and it was Photoshop. Now, when the Mac 2 first came out, color, pixel paint was the, the tool. And uh, I was dubbed Mr. Pixel Paint in many publications because I was creating all these things in Pixel Paint, and, uh, and I, I was helping with the development of the tool, how to fix the interface. Again, because I saw things early, I can help them develop them. There was a lot of things that were total dogs, you know. Um, but there were some that were good, and Pixel Paint was one of them. But then when Photoshop came out, that, that was it. That was the end of it. This is the tool for me. And then when Adobe bought it, because I was working with it about almost two years before Adobe saw it. Um, then when I Sorry, Photoshop was... Because was, I don't know the, the full history behind all that. So Photoshop was actually Photoshop before Adobe were well, even... It originally was called Display. Right. The original name... Now, the first time it went to market, it was called Barney Scan XP. The Barney Scan XP was a... Um, uh, the Barney Scan was a slide scanner. The first slide scanner right. that would adapt to personal computers. And uh, Photoshop was the, the engine that drove it. Okay, that was the software. But it was called Barney Scan XP. But that was the first commercial version of Photoshop before Adobe bought it. Then Russell Brown saw it and, and Warnock saw it and they saw the potential of it. So they bought the program and it turned into Photoshop. It was called Photoshop early. They called it Photoshop early. Um, I was kind of opposed to the name Photoshop because it limited it. Everybody thinks, oh, you, you draw with that? Uh, you draw with... And I always point out, if you look at the toolbar, there's no camera in the toolbar. Yeah. There's, there's paintbrushes, there's erasers and pencils, things that you kind of associate with painting and drawing. What would you have called it? Uh, <laughs> image creator or... So, who right. knows? There, yeah, there, yeah, yeah. there could have been so many other names, but Photoshop stuck and, and, and then it became the product and it just grew to where it is today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But back then, it was just... I remember it was just a uh, simple program... Uh, very few brushes, you know. In, in fact, the brushes. Um, I remember when they called me down at San Jose to, to look at this brush engine, and I said, I looked at this thing. It was pretty early, and I said, I haven't seen anything this cool since Pixel Paint. And they all started laughing. I didn't know why they were laughing. It turns out that Jerry Harris, one of the two guys who wrote Pixel Paint, was one of the guys who was the guy who wrote the brush engine. So I was like, wow, it's the old home. We, we got together yeah. again. I hadn't seen him. And then I, I worked closely on the development, 
creating the dialog box, which is why some of my brushes are in the dialog box. Yeah, the like brushes. Because yeah, you yeah. created the... Um, the grass brush, yeah. the dune grass brush. And I brush, use those a lot. And the maple leaf. Yeah, yeah, people use them all the time. They're my brushes. Um, and uh, like I tell people, there's so many brushes out there. You can buy so many brushes. But if you really know how to use the program, you can make your own brushes. Well, I, I always credit you in the tutorials that I do, especially when it comes to... Because I've been here at Adobe Max doing a class on um, selections and cutouts. And, you know, because that's one of, the, one of the things that people really struggle with. And I kind of show them, look, this is how you can fake it. And I use your, uh, was it number 112 and 134, these brushes, yeah. the single blade of grass, and they're three blades of grass. Yeah. And show them how by going to the presets to make it look like fur by changing the size exactly, jitter yeah. and the, the sort of uh, the separation and what have you. And it just works an absolute treat. And I always say to people, these ones in here were made by Bert Monroy, the godfather <laughs> of Photoshop. Yeah. There's a few more hidden in, like my Azalea brush. There's a few br other brushes that I did that are in the program, but they're not in the main panel. Yeah. You have to go into the auxiliaries and, and find them. But uh, yeah, I had a lot of early stuff to do with, uh, with, with, um, with Photoshop because, uh, well, my name was prominently displayed in the, um, in the first manual, yeah. and I co-wrote the first book. So I had already been using Photoshop for quite a few years, quite some time before it came out. So yeah. I was able to write that first book. Uh, it wasn't another book for almost two years later, which was the Wow book with, with Jack Davis, which I had quite a few uh, chapters I've in had there one too. of the Wow books when I started off. I remember that. Yeah, yeah that was the second book. Jack, uh, in fact, Jack was here. Uh, but Jack uh, kids me that you had the first one. I only had the second <laughs> one. <laughs> he had the most popular one, but, he had, but I had the first one. But... Um, yeah, I, I till this day I, I am called to give my opinion on certain parts of the program and yeah. so on, and, and and in certain cases because I'm mostly the alpha testers are photographers, whereas I'm one of the painters that's that's an alpha tester, so I get to see things early yeah. and, and play with. Like I remember the um, the uh, um, the brushes that, that like mimic uh, traditional media. Yes, yeah, I forget yeah. What they call now, but anyway, I remember going down to see the company. Um, that was developing this tool that they were thinking about buying it so they brought me down to get a demo of it from the company and to think should they buy this or not I said yeah of Absolutely, course yeah. it needs some tweaking here and there but yes this would be a great addition so that's my thing with Adobe I still go down there and many of the teams like the 3D team came to my studio the painting team came the entire teams will come up to my studio and spend a few hours hanging out talking mm. having fun they, they consider it a vacation to come to my house because it's a little red Redwood Grove and yeah. it's different from San Jose so they'll hang out in my studio and we have fun and eat cheese and drink wine and have fun <laughs> um so they they come up there and, and and i'll give them my two cents on whatever's coming out so obviously being, being with photoshop from the very very start of photoshop and here we are now at adobe max and we've saw yesterday the keynote all the new stuff that's come out as well because going back to like photoshop version one uh, there were no layers i mean i got involved in photoshop when it was cs that was my kind of first wow yeah, that's yeah, much yeah, later yeah, yeah well, version three was the first one with layers wow and, and i remember the first time i saw that they they brought me down to stanford stanford university and they stuck me in this room i didn't know i just met the person who brought who got me there from the university and brought me to this room i didn't know who's going to be there and it's this brightly lit room with all these cameras pointing at me right and this big mirror which i knew was a two-way glass yes so and i would hear somebody back there okay now you can open this so um in, in a short time i actually realized that 
Mark Hamburg was one of the people back there. I said, is that you, Mark? And he's, they started laughing because I knew who it was. But um, they, I opened up Photoshop, and my eye went, boom, right to the menu and said, layers. Layers? So I opened it up, and I started playing. I moved this around, moved that around. And I remember the, one of the first questions I asked is, how come I can't pick two layers at the same time? So my first response was a complaint. But, but I remember that's the first time I saw layers, and I thought, this is great. Now, the first time I saw layers was Digital Darkroom, which was the second image manip manipulation program. Right. Black and white, like Image Studio, because there was no color then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that was the first one to have layers in it. And, but, so I knew about layers already, but that was Photoshop didn't get them until version 3. Yeah, I just can't imagine doing stuff in Photoshop without there being layers, know. you know what I mean? It must be a yeah. nightmare. So. No, it, it was a nightmare because, you know, you wanted to move something over a little bit of a, an inch over, then you'd have to recreate everything that was in back. So I had to work with multiple images so I could re replace anything that was damaged by moving something over or whatever. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It, it was tough. The layers made it a lot easier. Uh, I would say that the, uh, the next big change was six. Because that's when we found layer styles right. in version 6. That was the first time we saw layer styles, which was a tremendous time saver. Because prior to that, you had to do all kinds of calculations. Uh, calculations is a command, which most people, and I ask people, uh, what about calculations? I ask people at I Adobe. I've, I don't think I've ever used it. Yeah, yeah. most people have it. Yeah. I ask people at Adobe. Uh, we don't use it. But it's a really crucial tool for manipula manipulating alpha channels, which are very powerful masks. Uh, and before, something like a drop shadow, okay, to create a drop shadow, you would have to do a, a series of calculations to create an alpha channel that would give you the, the mask where you would drop in the drop shadow. That would be then the selection, and then you would fill that with black at a certain opacity, and that would be the drop shadow. Whereas with layer styles, drop shadow, yeah. move it over here, move it over there, and it wasn't permanent until you said so. So that was a big change. And the, the next version, of course, had the brush engine, which was seven. And that, to me, was, that was it. That's when it became a total painting package for me mm. when they developed that, that brush engine. I've, I've found with them, um, one, one of the things I always talk about, because I'm kind of influenced by yourself and also people like, you know, you'll know Aaron Blaze uh, from Disney, mm -hmm. um, how much, for somebody like a photographer like me, can learn so much from artists. Because you, you know, you guys have a complete understanding of composition, light, shadow, and like so I've learned so much. I'm always directing people. So look, check out the work of Bert. Check out the work of Aaron, and look at other artists because there is so much we can learn. Because you guys know that stuff. Well, the thing is that we we tend to use the tools, uh, most of the tools, more frequently, whereas the photographers will use very few of the tools. They yeah. won't have that much need for the pen tool and and for you know. Um, some of the layer styles, they won't get that deep into the program. They'll just use the parts they need, whereas the, the illustrator will go in there and pretty much use every tool that's in there. Now, um, the, my sense of lighting, and, and so I'm a very observant person. I, I always tell my, my students to go through life with their eyes open. See things, you know, don't... don't Imagine how something should look. Study something. You know, make a model of how something looks to see what kind of a ca uh, shadow it casts. How does light affect this, and so on and so forth. It's a question of just observing your subject, looking at it really critically, so you can see every little aspect in order to recreate it. Um, and I was an art director for most of my life. And I worked with literally thousands of different photographers. In fact, I once ran this company in New York called Nobart. I had 32 photographers under me. 
right? So I knew about lighting, you know, through them, through a lot of them. I learned this stuff. And, and composition, that, that was things I learned in school and, and through the many years of working on, on, in advertising. You, you're creating a, a piece of ad. There's a lot more to it. You know, the whole psychological thing is how you're going to draw the eye in, how you're going to subliminally capture that, that person's attention and make them want to buy what you're selling, you know. So it's all these little tricks that come into my work as well. It's, it's how I will treat things, the composition, everything in a way that it's going to make the eye travel where I want it to. Okay, so so all these things are things that I picked up during my my life as 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 an artist well let's let's talk about that then because you're talking about your life leading through being art director and what have you we kind of touched on it briefly the other night when we were out having a bite to eat at lisa carney's place and getting i was getting an idea of the kind of things you've done yeah but putting photoshop aside that the your life kind of coming through this whole creative world Mark uh, Heaps, who I was talking to, he's been on our podcast, he was kind of saying, you should ask him about who he's worked for and what he's done and all this kind of stuff. So who, who have you, just off the top of your head, who have you worked for and what kind of things have you been instrumental in that people will know about that's kind of now everyday kind of stuff? Well, I've, um, I've worked for a few um, somewhat known companies uh, like AT&T, American Express, Apple, Adobe, um, I've worked for quite a few large companies. In fact, um, I was, uh, my partner and I, uh, the same guy who co-wrote the first book with me, um, we had a company called Incredible Interactivity, and we did interactive media really early. And I remember one thing that we did was the interactive, um, what was it called? Anyway, it was for the automobile show. Right. And it was for Oldsmobile. And what it was is that you would be able to go up to this monitor and pick a car and uh, pick a color and go through all these things and see it on the screen being formed. Now, this was all done with pixel paint because it was, and parts <laughs> of it, later it became better as we were doing it. We started using Photoshop because I did this animation, and this is before heavy-duty animation tools. Uh, Director was the animation tool at the time. And the the... The screen, when the machine was inactive, when nobody was on it, it had this revolving plate. It would just go around, and each time it turned around, it was a different car on it. Now, to get that smooth transition, because it wasn't done in 3D, this is done in, with all 2D uh, items, um, when I distorted things in pixel paint, frame to frame, the distortion made the eyes it cracked and all that, whereas Photoshop created really smooth transitions. So every time I did mm. a, I, I twisted something into that perspective of that plate going around, it would be nice and clean. So we started using Photoshop for that. And um, HyperCard was the engine that ran the whole thing. But HyperCard did not go full screen. So what happened is that the, when you came in, director would be the, this thing, and then when you tapped because it was a touch screen one of the first touch screens when you touch the screen it um it would go into the hypercard but we had it set up so that the transition that it went into hypercard the screen would still be all color and in the middle was the little section of hypercard which would blend into the background but it would look like it was all full screen and i remember we were showing it at a mac world and john scully 
who was the, the head of Apple at the time, came over and he saw this and he said we were misleading. That's not HyperCard. HyperCard can't do that. And we had to tear down the whole thing so he could see it because he wanted us to shut it down. He, he, we had to tear it down to show him. Just didn't believe it. Because he didn't believe it. And he thought we were, we were being bad, you know, misleading. <laughs> uh, but it, it just worked seamlessly. Now, nobody ever saw that startup screen. Because what happened the first day at the, at the first automobile show, which was, I think, was in Chicago, um, they had to hire guards because the lines to these two machines that we had set up were so long, they had to direct people of which way yeah, to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. the machines were never inactive. There was always right. somebody waiting to touch the screens. And then it went to New York and it went to a few cities. And it was the same case. They, they were really popular. The Oldsmobile Consumer Computer. That's what it was called. I just remember uh, and, uh, and, and it, it was really cool because it was early stuff. Nobody was doing this interactive right. stuff yet. And we did quite a few things for, for quite a few NOLA office furniture and American Express. We did a whole bunch of interactive media for those people. So it was all new, was, but we were doing it. Um, I've done well for Apple. I did a lot of things for Apple. But I would say the biggest thing I did for Apple is... Um, when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, uh, they wanted to do these Photoshop shootouts on the screen for the keynotes. So they hired me to come over and and, uh, and do it. To do a, So what would happen is Phil Schiller would stand on, on a PC and Steve would stand at the Mac and they would both push a button and this thing would happen on a screen. This thing, this image would start to build itself up, right? And of course, Mac is done and the PC would still be going, going, going. Yeah. The yes, Mac yes. was, was quick. But I did that for four years. I did a bunch of those, those demos. Um, the last thing I did for them was a, um, was an animation because they needed to, and that I did for Avi, um, because they needed to show why if the clock speed is slower, why is the machine faster? So it was this whole thing with the checksum and all this technical stuff. I don't even remember all of it now. But I had to show as, as an animation how this thing was working. Uh, and, and in retrospect, I, I was paid for all these things with equipment. Uh, and my payment for that particular job was uh, with a laptop. Now, it originally started out as a auto manufacturing uh, assembly line. It was all these different things. By the time I was done, and the whole thing, and I did, a, a, I did some math to see um, how much time it took me, I figured I paid $22,000 for that laptop because of the amount of extra work wow. I had to do. And, that, and it was fun, those times at Apple, because I was in a room called Southern Exposure. There was no windows, but they called it Southern Exposure. And, but this is Apple. This is a very secretive place. It's, um, nobody knows what's going on. And I remember that um, when I was working in there, there was a box. And if anybody knocked on the door, I was supposed to take that box and put it over the machine that I'm working on. Oh, wow. Because nobody at Apple can see what I'm working on. You know? Wow. And they were very secretive. And I remember one time, uh, I think we did it on a weekend, okay? Did it on a weekend. And they made me sign an additional set of non-disclosures. And I said, but I got like 200 of these things with you. I said, no, this one's special. You got to sign this new non-disclosure. So I did. And then these boxes come in, right? And they put these boxes in. And I said, they said, be really careful. These are prototypes. They're not complete. Um, so let's be really careful with them. So open the first box and I look in and it's like, holy crap, that looks like the Jetsons. And it was the first iMac. 
that Bondi blue one. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I'm glad I didn't do it, but one of the Apple guys reached in and grabbed that handle, you know, that round handle on the top, yeah. and he pulled it and popped off. <laughs> Because these were prototypes, they were just glued and taped together. For, for they were for the for the keynote, and um, but nobody at Apple could see these. I nobody knew about the iMac. Everybody knew about a part of it, but they didn't know the overall package. So they they kept that secret from from the world and and their own employees. And I remember um, the the day after I did this presentation, I had a couple of guys from Macworld coming over to my studio to do a to, to talk. And I kind of weaved the conversation because we were talking about the keynotes coming up. And I tried to weave the conversation to see what they knew. They didn't have a clue. I think it's a new MacBook, which is what I thought I was going to be talking about, a new MacBook until I saw this, this Jetsons thing. Uh, and, and what it was, it, it was the iMac and nobody knew it. And it was a big surprise. But it, it was, there were fun times. It was kind of a strange place to work because it was, it, and I remember one night it, I was the last person there. I come out, and um, there's only one other car in the parking lot besides mine. The guy I was working with, um, he rode a bike because he lived just a few blocks away. Uh, and, and I'm in the only car. It's about 11.30 at night, and there was still one person at Apple, but we were the only ones there. And that, that's the way I worked in that room by myself for hours at a time. Mm. Uh, but it usually got it done in a day, but it was usually a very long day. But uh, it, it was fun just to, to be at Apple and then be at the keynote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I'd have to be at the keynote early to run a test on everything, make sure everything's working when they push that F key 9 that everything's going to work. Yeah. So I had to set it all up. So it was, it was a fun time. How one thing that strikes me is because going back to then you you're kind of like pioneering a lot of this stuff. You know, you've, you've mentioned already that those these guys who didn't believe that software you're using was able to do a certain thing and so on. Yeah. So here you are kind of saying, oh, I, I had to create these animations and what have you. Who's taught you how to do this stuff? You know, who uh, too teaches? That's, you know, that's uh, why I tell people that, you know, you can read all the books in the world, you can watch all the videos, but the best way is to sit there and push the buttons. Nobody's taught me any of this stuff because when I first saw Photoshop, I, I co-wrote the first book. Yeah. There was no books. There was no manual yet. It hadn't been written. So um, what I do, and in all the software that I've ever gotten, has always been pre-released and stuff. So what I do is I do that. I push the buttons. Well, what does this do? Well, let me put 0.5 and see what it does. Do minus 10 and see what it does. Hold down the option key, see what it does. And that's the way I learned, by sitting there and playing with the things. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And um, so as time progresses, I, you know, start doing little ma manipulations here and maybe if I do this to it and, and apply that color to it. and So, so I learn by, by actually sitting there and playing with it. Yeah. Uh, and I tell my students the best way to, to learn is to sit there and play. You can read the books, but by actually touching buttons. That's the kind of, kind of sort of shadows, the kind of thing that I was saying yesterday when I was talking to how to people should sort of, when they're doing their retouching, approach Photoshop with the attitude of what would happen if. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because I think sometimes we can get so fixed on that tool is for that job. Right, but exactly. there are pictures that that particular tool won't necessarily work on. So what's yeah. the workaround? Well, what would happen if yeah. I use this particular well, thing? Well, I tell people, first of all, especially with filters and layer styles, they have names. And the first thing I tell them is forget the name because the name will limit you. Like motion blur, okay? Motion blur, okay, it has a purpose and the name is for that purpose. But what it's doing can create a lot of other effects. Right. And you put it in combination with other filters. Like, for instance, just today I was doing a demo and I wanted to show 
two filters working together, how many different variations of things you can do. I created clams, I created snow, I created a whole bunch of different things using noise and motion blur. Those two filters together, all the different effects, depending on what colors you use and in context with everything else, create a completely different effect. So I tell people is, you know, forget the name, push those buttons, see what it does, and then you know you know what that filter or that or that layer style will do yeah because layer styles in particular you change the mode of a particular style it's going to have a completely different effect yeah so it's it's important to sit there and play so i don't waste time reading books when i get a new piece of software i will sit there and say okay well, what does this do and i'll put it through every pace i can possibly think of i have some files that i've created to test things the file will have a series of color gradients, a series of black to white gradients, and then just color swatches of different things. And I will pl- apply filters or effects to this one file and see how it affects different things, different color variations, so, so on, to see what it does. And then I'll put another layer, a duplicate layer on top and have the see how it affects the one below by doing something. And that's the way I learn, is by simply sitting there and playing with the stuff. So. Okay, that, that makes complete sense. Now, one thing you mentioned there about uh, a short while back, you mentioned about your students, people that you kind of lecture to and stuff like. You always tell them to go out there and, and study areas. Yeah, like you've been, you know, you've done that incredible painting of Times Square. There's the one in Amsterdam which I absolutely love on the the bridge there. So, yeah. what what is your process? Then? let's say, for example, the the one in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everyone kind of knows that scene that you've captured there. What was your process? Did you go there before it? Did you, did you, take, yeah. did you take loads of photos? What do you do? Well, to get I'm, glad, I'm glad you brought that one up because that's the first painting I ever did that the photograph inspired me. Usually I'm walking down the street and I see something and it's like, whoa, I want to paint this place. So what I'll do is I'll take a photograph of it and I'll take notes, right? The notes tell me things that the, ca- the camera won't pick up. And also I'll, I'll, I'll take S- Sorry, notes. such as... Um, like for instance, um, there's one piece that I use to explain that because there's also I take notes and I also sketch. Right. Uh, the purpose of the sketch, first of all, is that the, the camera distorts. So the sketch will give me what the eye is seeing, the proportions and stuff, and then the camera gives me what the view looks like. Now the reason for the notes, uh, there's this one piece that I use is called Spangers, and it's just a big uh, marquee with neon on it for a restaurant in Berkeley. And um, there's these wires that are holding the, uh, the, the, the uh, ends of that sign up. Now, in the photograph, there's these black lines that are the wires. But my notes told me they were, they were uh, metal cables in, encased in a plastic sleeve. So in the painting, you see these thin wires inside of the plastic sleeve. In the photograph, you don't. You just see the black line. So my notes told me, what is actually there because the camera can't pick up everything but my paintings should because you're standing in the front of the place in my paintings rather than looking at a photograph so the process is that I will take the photographs I will take the notes and I will draw it now in the case of, of um, Amsterdam Mist uh, I was looking through editing a bunch of pictures from a, a trip I had taken and uh, Amsterdam was one of the stops and this one caught my eye I said the fog I hadn't I'd done fog once before but now with these new tools I think I could do it better so I was inspired but I only had this one photograph and it was you know it was a misty day so stuff in the distance was just a total blur right so what I did there uh is that um 
I went to Google Street View and I plotted where I was because I looked at, well, here's one that's recognizable, which is here's Anne Frank's house. And I knew that over here was this, this uh, cafe, um, I forget what it was called, but it was a cafe. So there's two shots in between that, and that's them. One of them is the actual shot, the other one's a zoom in. The zoom in is the one that I painted. And I said, that's it. So if it was between these two, I went to Google Street View and I looked at the, the way I would have walked, and I found the bridge. And I went down the street level, and I saw the street. So then I walked up and down the block in Google Street View, looking at this building. What does that light look like? What does the door look like? So that way, when I painted it, I can recreate the scene. So uh, in my latest piece, which was Le Dome, a, a Parisian scene, pretty much I relied on Google Street View for all that. Because, again, that was inspired by the, the shot, uh, though the shot doesn't look anything like the painting but I was inspired by the place and the mood that I felt being Paris uh, and that's what I wanted to capture is the mood but I needed the scene so what I did is I went up and down Google Street View looking up at the building and looking what what, what does that cornice look like and stuff so I'll do my research that way years uh, ago we'd have been buying mm? airplane tickets and all sorts right. of yeah. research well Times Square was a little easier because you know my I, I'm originally from New York, and um, I would go back to New York to visit my family quite often, or for tours of, of some kind, uh, you know, talking here or there. Um, so I, there were, I think, 12 different trips to, to Times Square during the production of Times Square. I was living in California when I did it, but I went back to Times Square, and what I would do is I, I take notes. I need to see what are the girders that hold up this billboard look like? What does that garbage can look like? So then when I went back to Times Square, I would look at my notes, go to that spot, take pictures, uh, do sketches, and, and take notes of what those things. So then I would get back home and go through all that information and then recreate those elements for the painting. Uh, it took four years to complete that painting. So I was just going to say, how know. long does it normally take? Yeah, four years. Well, that's the longest. Nothing's taken me that long, and hopefully nothing will ever take that long again. But uh, that took four years because just the size of it, it's, it's a massive piece uh, and so much detail. I was going to say, because one of the things I noticed with your work is it's, they're kind of photorealistic, but they're not, are they? Because whereas right. the depth of field, There's you can no have a, depth of field, a yeah. way distant kind of yeah. uh, window on a building but you can zoom in on that and then you can start to see who's in the building. Right. And that's just, I mean... That's, I, that's why I'm not a photorealist because photorealist is, is, is um, uh, a genre, but they adhere to the photograph. So there is the depth of field, there is the distortion, whereas mine, it's like being there. So I consider myself more of a hyper-realist. Right. So, um, so if you're here and you suddenly look at that building that's four blocks down, you can focus on those windows and see what they look like, right? And if you're standing right here next to this garbage can, you can look at the garbage can and see the rust on it and see what it looked like. A photograph is not going to be able to capture that. If you focus on the camera, that building down there is going to be totally out of focus. Yes, yeah. So that's why I'm not really a photorealist. I'm a hyperrealist because if you're standing there, you look at the garbage can, you'll see the rust. You look at the building, you're going to see the windows. So I, everything is in focus. That's why it's not really a photograph. In fact, some things you kind of, uh, you know, stand back and look at them it might be a little too sharp because because of the fact there is no depth of field so everything is in focus yeah yeah, yeah. i uh, when i first moved to california i went to work for industrial light and magic for a while and as a matte painter and i remember the the first uh, thing that i had completed they told me you got to dumb down this is too clear 
And, and so I went to, to the dailies and they put my image on the screen. It's like, holy crap, my eyes hurt. Because when it was projected that big, it just was too, too clear. It was too sharp that it was distracting. So I had to dumb down. So I had to not put so much detail in, you know, just, just put a little tone in there. Don't put the actual grains of dirt, you know, just tone it down. So I, I learned I had to tone it down. Not for my paintings, but for things like that, I had to actually tone it down a little bit because I was getting too real. So. And here we are with 4K, 8K. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> we want now, more and more detail all the time. Detail. We? Yeah. yeah, well, this last piece, the, the, the Parisian scene, is a, a, a breakthrough because I'm working larger than I ever did before. Um, the last time I did this was a, a painting called Oakland, the Oakland Theater. It's called Oakland. The painting's called Oakland. And it's very detailed. Now, my earliest Photoshop paintings were about 1.2 megabytes. Then, for a long time, they went up to like 50 megabytes. Then they were like 70 megabytes. Yeah. Right? The Oakland Theater was the first time I pushed it. I went to 15 by 20 at 480 PPI, which gave me 197 megabytes. And all my paintings until, um, until Amsterdam Mist were that, those dimensions. Why 15 by 20? Because when I worked traditionally, I worked on a 15 by 20 Bainbridge board. 15 by 20 is divisible by all standard frames. So I worked at 15 by 20 at 480 PPI, right? But then I got that new little tin can Mac a few years ago. So I said, you know, I'm gonna push it. So I said, the next size from 15 by 20 was 20 by 40. So I said, I'm gonna do it 20 by 40 at 480 PPI. Didn't work, it, it choked. So I did it, I did it 30 by 22.5. So that image is, an, is a new level of detail that I hadn't gotten before. I haven't worked on one that size since. I've worked on a couple, but they weren't that size. I went back to my old size of 15 by 20 at 480. But uh, that one, uh, the dome, I pushed it. And so I got more detail than I'd ever gotten before. So um, I'm waiting for something that requires that much detail, something to inspire me, and I'll go to push it to that size again. Uh, that flattened file is close to half a gigabyte. So it is a little bigger than, than all the others. And... Uh, I don't count Times Square and Damon because those are panoramas and, and I couldn't do those at 480. Both of those are at 360 PPI because 480 would choke the machine. Right, okay. So I couldn't work at that resolution. But now it'd be great to do a, a panorama at that, at that resolution and, you know, much bigger. And I'll probably go insane and work for 20 <laughs> years on it. But, uh, but it, it would be fun to see how much detail I can get. So yeah, I'm always... Yeah. I, I've always been pushing the machine. I've always pushed it to see how far I can go with something before things start to break down. Cool. And I've always broken things down. Times Square went through four different versions of Photoshop in those four years. And they were all alpha and beta versions. I don't think I've ever painted anything with a, with a final version. Everything's been done with beta. You're not supposed to do that. But that's how I, I'm going to learn. That's how I'm going to test it to see if it works yeah, 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 yeah. by pushing the limits. So uh, when I'm working with something in beta, I'm going to push it and see until it breaks all right so listen one thing just have a bit of a break from that one thing that we always ask people on uh, on the podcast is two is two things and it's loves and loathes okay and i know i haven't kind of pre-warned you about this yeah. but it's just to ask you first of all and it is all in a, in a kind of like a positive spin to it what do you first of all what do you love about what do you do what the industry and all that kind of stuff what's the first thing that comes to your mind 
Okay, the first thing that comes to my mind is the innovation, how it's constantly changing, how it's constantly progressing and getting better. Okay, um, so it becomes more powerful, uh, the, the machines are capable of handling more data and, and having things render a lot faster, and uh, the tools just get better and better. So it's a very exciting to constantly, uh, it's not like traditional, you know, here's the oil and here's the brushes, okay, and 10 years from now, 20 years from now, here's the oil and here's the brushes. Whereas now, you know, from version to version, there's all these new tools. I remember a book I wrote um, in which I covered the, the brush engine, and I said, in my last book, I had this whole chapter on creating these leaves, rip that out of the book, because that's all, that's old stuff. So things are constantly changing, which keeps me, excited about what's new yeah, yeah, yeah. so i i'm always uh, uh, that that's the thing i love the most is that it's constantly changing it's constantly getting better and more powerful and allowing you to more creative freedom to if you can think it you can create it cool that's that's what i all right like it good answer so what about the loaves then and it doesn't have oh, to be a lot of loaves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. all right so what, what comes to your head what would you change? What don't you like? And all that kind of stuff. Well, there's, there's certain things that, uh, for instance, the companies don't always listen to their... They, they like to say they're listening to their 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 uh, their uh, customers, but they don't really listen, okay? Uh, and there's a lot of things that could be done better. Um, one thing I, I'm not always happy about is there's more and more shortcuts. Now, those shortcuts make it easier for people. And, like, I get a lot of people who say, you know, they'll watch me do a bunch of things. Can I just do that with a filter? You know, no. Sometimes you have to think a little more, you know. Uh, and a lot of the shortcuts have made things easier, but in many other cases, they've, made, they've kind of broken things. And at the same time, they just take away the thought process for people. If all they have to do is push a button, then they don't have to think that much. And I like something that's going to stimulate you a little more. Something that's going to challenge you. All my paintings are a challenge. I don't, if it's something that I'm not going to, there are a few that I've done just to fill in because I wanted to do something, but they weren't challenging. But most of my paintings, there's been a challenge from the start. How am I going to be able to get this effect? How am I going to be able to do that? And that's the joy of the, of the painting. But with all these shortcuts, it's like you don't really have to think. It's just, oh, I'm going to push this button and that's it. So it's kind of like it's turning into fast food. You want a nice gourmet meal, or you just want to go get a, a hamburger with the uh, you so, know. So mass do you produce. think that's kind of restricting people's creativity? Then it's, is that what you're yeah, exactly. It's restricted creativity and and just the exploration process, the the desire to see well, what else can I do? So that's that's one thing that I, I, I'm not crazy about is that all these push buttons have made it too easy. And in some cases, when it's that easy, it's, just, it's kind of becomes homogenous. You know, everybody's seeing the same thing. Everybody's doing it. Oh, I've seen that effect everywhere because it's so easy to do. So like the drop shadow, when the drop shadow came out, yeah, it was a drop shadow and everything. It gets overdone, you know, whereas a little extra thought to do something a little different, you know, and, and that's what I prefer. Is you do see that a lot in this industry, don't you? Like, I mean, coming from the, from the photography side of it, you can see a certain look that's created. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, everybody's doing that certain look, aren't yeah. they? So like it does, that it HDR is, stuff, man. You started seeing a lot of that Grammy looks and stuff. Like, it gets overused because it's easy. You know, whereas, you know, the, the, I can understand if people have deadlines and, and clients, of course, you know, have the final say. I can understand that part. But from a creative standpoint, you know, if you have to think and you're, you're challenging yourself a little more, you're going to grow that much better. And, and that's what I think is important is that people should 
take the time to be challenged and and try to meet that challenge and try to solve the problems on their own yeah. rather than just give me a button. So I guess it's fair to say then that you're, you, you do believe in things like people having personal projects, not just doing client work. If you do this yeah. for your own, you know, for, to make yeah. money, also get the Well, the personal well. projects, for one thing, help you to learn the techniques so when you're met with a deadline, you already know what to do. And you can do them quicker. And you can do it quicker yeah, yeah, because yeah. you already know what to do. Yeah. You don't have time. The client's not going to pay for you to experiment. They want this job and they want it tomorrow. So if you already know the techniques because you learned them on your own, then you can produce something quicker. Yeah. But if you have to take the time, let me go watch some YouTube videos because I don't know how I'm going to get this. But if you've already experimented to get that effect, then when the job comes that requires that effect, you know what to do. So I, I think it's important for people to have personal projects where they can explore and challenge themselves to create something. Yeah, and that's, that I know you, you were busy this morning, you weren't able to get into the, the keynote, but they had a legendary photographer, Albert Watson, who was doing a keynote this morning, and he kind of was talking big time about projects. It always seems that the, the people who have really kind of made a name for themselves and are moving on, they all do these things, these personal projects. Yeah, because they love what they do. Yeah. So the personal project is... is their, their life for me my my life is surrounds around my, my paintings yeah okay yeah, yeah. i don't make a lot of money on my painting i don't sell a million prints but they're the ones that stimulate me yes because not, i don't have to answer to a client i don't have to oh this has to look this way because it's got to be this color no it's what i want yeah so it gives me that personal satisfaction that i'm doing something for me and if the rest of the world enjoys it okay the rest of the world is going to learn what i learned because I'm going to then teach it to them what, what I learned. Uh, I'd rather they learn it on their own. But, but you know, it's, that's, those personal projects are my fun. That's where I'm going in there and learning my tools. So rather than learning them on the job. So what's, uh, what, what's next for Bert Monroy? And just wrapping up, what's not next for Bert Monroy? Um, well, you know, I've been toying with this idea for quite a while now. And this year has been a pretty intense year for me. And what I want to do is break away from the 2D world. I, um, I've done a lot of 3D in my, in my, in my time. And what I want to do um, is something that you can immerse yourself in. I like the AR and the VR concepts. Right. So I want to do a painting that you don't stand there and look at it. I want to do a painting that you walk into, that you go into and look around and, and do things. So I want to do something that's that much more involved so that you immerse yourself in the painting and shut the world out because you know you look at a painting then somebody else stands next to you and looks at it and you feel like oh i should move or something you know you're interrupted but if you put on a pair of goggles and you're in that world you're alone you can do whatever you want yeah, yeah, yeah. so i want to create worlds that you walk into rather than just stand back and look at that's, well, hurry up, that's what's I want to see that. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm, I've been playing with all kinds of little things here and there, just trying to build it up. I don't think the technology is quite there yet for the way I want to take it, at least not in Photoshop. I, if I turn to something like Maya, you know, some 3D tools, it'd be a lot quicker. Yeah. But I, my, for me, the challenge is watching Photoshop progress uh, with their 3D capabilities, which are getting better and better. Uh, so I'd like to do the whole thing in Photoshop Brilliant. because that's the challenge. And that's something that everybody can relate to and, and have. So yeah. that's, I would say that's where my mind is going now, the AR and VR worlds. Well, I look forward to that. Listen, I, I'm, I'm going to wrap up now because I appreciate we're at Adobe Max. I know that you're flying out later on. Yes, I'm um, I just want to say thank you so much. I know as corn as it may sound, I would not be sat here now talking to you 
if you hadn't been willing to share the stuff that you've been doing for you know a number of years now when I first started out and I discovered you I wouldn't be sat here now so from me thank you I, I, I <laughs> and I'm thank sure you, that's yeah. echoed by a lot of people who are listening to this as well to say thank you for you yeah well, you well my whole thing is is sharing once I've painted something like I said I painted for myself but everything I learned along the way um, I'm happy to share I, I love to teach other people because then I get excited about what they're doing when I see somebody do something based on something I've taught them, it's a really strong personal satisfaction that that I get from that, knowing that I've touched another person. So back when I was a kid, um, there were people who touched me that way. So it's kind of like paying back, saying that I'm going to go. I'm getting emotional here. But it's kind of like paying back. I'm going to turn on people. Like I do a lot of inner city schools, inner city high schools. I go and... and hang out with the kids and show them stuff because I know one of those kids I'm going to touch and he's going to or her are going to do something. In fact, um, in Richmond High uh, up in, in the Bay Area where I live, um, there are two kids that many years ago, because I've been doing the, the classes there for 25 years, um, went into the field and one of them actually gave me a job. He gave me a, an illustration job some years back. He says, you, you, you know, I learned, I got into advertising because of the stuff I learned from you. And that, that right there, I gave this kid a direction and he's doing something from it. And he paid me back by giving me a job. But um, still, it's to see that I'd be able to touch another person's life and, and move them forward. So oh, mate, that, that's, I, I, genuinely, that's you, I mean, that's fantastic. But genuinely, you have. You've, you've kind of, I don't want to sound corny here, but it's genuine. I wish people could see what I'm seeing now, sat with you here as you're explaining what you do and how you feel about it. You are, I can see it in your face. You genuinely love doing what you're doing. Yeah, I do. You love the sharing of yeah. it. And I know from me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the business I've got now if you hadn't been doing what you're doing. Do you know what I mean? So from me, a sincere thank you. And from many other people as well. well. So uh, the fact that I'm sat here talking with you, the fact that I can call you a friend is is a wish, is a dream come true for me. And I know, you know, it really is. And I will be taking you up on the offer to come to your studio. Yeah, you should. (laughs) And I have a beautiful guest room. And uh, you can stay there. You have private entrance and private I will garden. Be there. Jesus has uh, recommended. He said, "Listen, take him up on the offer. You've got to go and spend some time with him." And yeah. I will definitely be doing that. It'd be fun, yeah. But Bert, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, and I'd love to get you back in here again at some point. We'll put links to your stuff in the show notes. But thank cool. you so much for your time. Hey, it's been fun. <laughs> okay. <laughs>